You'll remember last time we were in Psalm chapter 51, and we looked at the first half of that psalm. Well, today we're going to look at the second half of Psalm 51. So if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 51, and we're going to put particular emphasis on verses 13 um, through 19, but I'll begin reading um, at verse 10. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing upon it. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. We pray that its truths would be opened to us this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit, that he would anoint the preaching of the word with the unction of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit, that the Son of God might be magnified, that Jesus Christ might be held out to sinners this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, each one of us have probably seen a TV show or a magazine that displays a before and after picture of a house or something like that. It displays uh, a picture of a horribly dilapidated house on one side with doors hanging on barely by the hinges. The windows might be shattered out. The, the paint is chipped. And then right next to that in that magazine, you see that the after picture it's got a whole new paint job, all new doors, hinges, windows, appliances. It's a completely new house, ready for new use, ready for completely new use. And similarly, this is the picture that we find in Psalm chapter 51. Only it doesn't merely show us a renewed house, a restored house but it shows us a before and after picture of a renewed believer, a Christian who's experienced spiritual renewal, a believer who has gone from a season of spiritual dryness and barrenness and brokenness because of his own unconfessed sin to a state of spiritual restoration. And so you'll remember that last time we looked at verses 1 through 12, and we saw David's genuine repentance before God. That's what those verses contain, is David's repentance. And if you need a refresher, you can notice at the beginning of this psalm, 
In your Bible, the inscription says, A Psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. So it's David's repentance of those heinous sins of adultery with Bathsheba, another man's wife known as Uriah the Hittite, who David indirectly murdered by sending him to the front lines. And David has, has come to God, as we said, in genuine repentance. They provide for us an example, these verses do, of a believer's response to the revelation of his own sin. He's come to God in repentance saying, According to your mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me. Cleanse me from my sin. But as we're going to see this morning, there's a break here in the passage between verses 12 and 13. There's a break. There's this change in the petitions of David in his prayer because David, a repentant sinner, has received the pardon that he's called out for. He's received it not because of anything within himself, not because of anything within the sinner himself, but he's received mercy because God is a God of mercy who pardons the sins of his people through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as all of us here who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, David has drank again from the undeserved, unmerited, overflowing fountain of the free grace of God. But notice his petitions. Notice how they ended for us before. They ended asking for spiritual refreshment, for renewal, to uphold him in his spirit, to be brought back into right relationship with God, that he would receive a willing spirit, as it says in our text, and even the creation of a new heart. Notice in verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God. Notice the, the word here, create, that David is using is the same word used in the first words of the first chapter of Genesis, for God creating the world out of nothing by a word of his power. That's the transformation that David knows he needs. That's the transformation that each of us need when we come repenting of our sin. It's the restoration that only proceeds from God himself who spoke all things into being. Friends, if you don't come to God in genuine repentance as David has in the first 12 verses of this passage, there can be no spiritual renewal from our sin. In other words, repentance precedes restoration. Repentance precedes restoration. If we're satisfied to harbor unconfessed sin in our hearts, we might as well just stop at the 12th verse. Because only those who have repented of their sin and believed upon Christ can experience the renewal that we're going to look at today in our passage. But what then? If, if you and I have come, we come to Christ in genuine repentance. We've been brought low in the conviction of our sin by the power of the Spirit. We've experienced the mercy of Jesus Christ in our lives. We might ask, what does it look like for a Christian to live in response to grace? Once God has implanted that same spirit of willingness 
in our hearts that David has prayed for, what do we do now? That's the question that the second half of this psalm is going to answer for us. What is the result of spiritual renewal in the life of a believer? And as we'll see here, that Psalm 51, verses 13 through 19, is the after picture. It's the fruit of life change in a believer. It offers us several implications of that renewal here in David's prayer. We see that the stored, the restored sinner receives first a will to proclaim in verses 13 through 15. Secondly, we see the restored sinner receives a heart of humility in verses 16 through 17. And finally, an outward focused concern in verses 18 through 19. So firstly, we see a will to proclaim, a will to proclaim in verses 13 through 15. But before we jump right into verse 13, David said previously in the 12th verse, look right there, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. He says, if you, O God, in your mercy, see fit to restore me, uphold me by your spirit. Uphold me. David's come to embrace anything but self-sufficiency in the midst of his sin. He knows that without the upholding power of the Spirit of God, he would slip and fall right back into those same sins he's committed. But then observe that this change in verse 13 that we spoke of. It's the renewal, the restored sinner's heart. We can see this answer to prayer take place in the petitions of David as they shift. He doesn't get up from his confession. He doesn't leave his prayer closet and go right back to his destitute spiritual life. He doesn't go back to pursuing his wants and desires, spending his time as he did before that got him into his sin and fall in the first place. But he says in verse 13, immediately, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Sinners will be converted unto you. He moves straight here from his repentance to being stirred to the service of God. To tell others of what God has done for him. That's the first thing on his mind. My friends, renewed Christians serve. Renewed, restored Christians serve. When you and I experience the same type of forgiveness, the undeserved restoration, it's impossible for us not to think of those words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. How is it that God could use me, a sinner? How is it that the one true holy God of heaven could look upon me, could look upon you, could look upon David and send his one and only son to die for us? That's the most baffling theological question that we could ask. And the the answer that scripture gives is grace. It's all of God's grace. 
It might make us think of a quote from the prophet Micah, Who is a God like unto thee? Who is a God like ours that pardons iniquity and passes by the transgressions of the remnant of his heritage? He retains not his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He casts our sins into the depths of the sea, never to be seen again. And for this reason only, for this only, David has gone down in the annals of biblical history as a man after God's own heart. Not because of his greatness, surely not because of his perfection, but because he came to the only one who can pardon the iniquity of sinners. The only one who can pardon the iniquity of sinners. There's no other avenue for us to pursue, no other place we can find redemption from the bondage of our sin and misery. There's no other remedy than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. There's only one way to be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And what sinner who's experienced, who's experienced that restoration, who's experienced the power of Christ to take away the sins of the men, would neglect to tell his fellow man. Which one of us receiving that would neglect to tell others of the grace of God? It's impossible for a heart transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit to remain idle and complacent. What is one like David, like we who have received that great spiritual renewal and pardon do? We want to shout it from the mountaintops to tell others of the marvelous mercy of God, that other sinners might experience conversion and the joy of salvation. You might remember the story of the woman at the well after she identifies Jesus as the Christ. She doesn't continue what she's doing. She doesn't continue to draw water from the well, but she leaves her pot and runs to tell others about the living water that only Christ has to offer. And so that's what we see here in verse 13 in the heart of David, is a restored sinner's will to proclaim. A restored sinner's will to proclaim. It's not only true of the sinner who's just been converted, but of the most seasoned one of us here. A sinner like David who is known for himself, the loving kindness, the covenant faithfulness of God. My friends, which one of us would light a candle and place it under a bushel? Why would we not set it out for the whole world to see, to light up the dark space? Which one of us, having been saved, could neglect to tell others the good news? Friends, how will they hear without a preacher? How will they hear without a preacher if faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God? Why would we not tell the lost that in Jesus Christ there is salvation for the chief of sinners, the outcasts of outcasts, and rest for weary souls? And let me ask you this question. What better person is there 
What better person is there to teach sinners the gospel than the person who's been schooled in the school of experience? What better person is there? The broken vessel who's been put back together again by the grace of God. That's exactly what David would reveal to us in this verse. Notice that first word, then. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways. Then, because I've tasted of it myself, I will teach it to others. You can't teach what you do not know. Remember the way that David was first brought to repentance? We read it in the inscription. He didn't just accidentally stumble upon his repentance like an animal scavenges for food, but God sent to him another sinner, saved by the grace of God. He sent Nathan the prophet to him to reveal to him the sin that he was harboring in his heart. And that's exactly what's on the mind of David in our passage. David is resolved to go and teach sinners what's been taught to him by Nathan, to proclaim to sinners the riches and blessings of salvation, to tell them of the one priest to come, the Lord Jesus Christ, who doesn't cleanse as hyssop as a Levitical priest, but the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, who offers a permanent cleansing, a permanent renewal. David will tell them of the one who's washing and who's blotting, whose sacrifice isn't made once a year for the sins of himself and the sins of the people, but the one who offered up himself as the propitiation for sin. The sinless and spotless Lamb of God slain upon Calvary's cross. That's what David would have us teach to others. That's what David would exhort us to do. Why would we neglect to tell others that God commendeth His love toward us in this? That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Why would we not tell other sinners that glorious message? You might not have realized it, but the Great Commission is very much present in the Old Testament. Is it not? Do you not see it? In this verse, that the end of the commission is exactly what David is resolved to do. To go ye therefore and teach all nations all that I have commanded you. To teach the people of the nations. And friends, let me remind you, it's not only a duty to share the gospel. The commission is not only a duty, but it's a privilege that God would use redeemed sinners to tell other sinners the gospel. God could have appointed the gospel to be preached by angels. He could have caused rocks to cry out. He could have used a donkey, like in the case of Balaam. But instead, he's chosen that blood-bought group of sinners, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, to take the commission to the nations. What a blessing. And there's no better a preacher for the conversion of souls than the one who's known the forgiveness of sin, who's walked in the shoes of those. The one who has been forgiven much, as the Lord says, loves much. Remember what the Apostle Paul says in 1 
Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, foremost. Just as Christ came to Saul of Tarsus, the wicked persecutor on the Damascus road and appointed him a laborer for the gospel. God is in the business of converting the chiefest of sinners and sending them out to tell other sinners the good news. Friends, never doubt your usefulness to God. You say, you don't know what I've done. Never doubt your usefulness to God, for God is in the business of redeeming and equipping sinners. And we can even have confidence in speaking to even the most hostile of peoples, to taking the gospel to the darkest corners of the earth, because it's God who does the work within the hearts of men. It's not us. Christ says that all the Father has given me will come to me. We can be assured that all those Christ died for will come to him, friends. Now look at verse 14. David says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Though he's received the forgiveness, he's still not quick. Though he's received the restoration, he's still not quick to make light of his sin, is he? No, he, he actually, uh, by the word blood guiltiness, is referring to a crime in the Old Testament worthy of capital punishment. He knows what he's deserving of, and it's not restoration, but by God's grace, He's received it. Adultery and murder are by no means small sins. But I want to to make a distinction here between two things, which is guilt and grief over sin in the life of a believer. You and I are called to do what David does in this passage, to grieve over our sin, to lament over the sins that still plague us, to call out to God to be freed from that bit of flesh that remains within us. But we're not called to be plagued with the guilt, to be plagued with the guilt of the sins for which Christ has died and we've confessed. If it's been nailed to the cross, we're not to be guilty over it. To grieve over it, yes. But guilt is what Satan, the deceiver, uses to paralyze, to make us complacent, to keep us from going and telling others of the grace of God in our lives. And we must not fall into its cripple. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, When the devil throws your sins in your face and tells you that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I, uh, that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. And instead of sinking into guilt because David knows he's been forgiven so much, he writes this doxology and expression of praise towards God 
in the end of verse 14, in the whole of verse 15. He says, My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness, O Lord. Open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. I think it's been aptly observed here that if David was preaching back in verse 13, he's now leading a choir of redeemed sinners in verses 14 and 15. In fact, I don't think it'd be too much to say that David is willing to do whatever he can, anything for the service of God, having been forgiven of so much. Haven't you felt that way before when you've come up from your prayers and you're ready to go and serve God? I think this is just more stacking in the pile of evidence that David has received back that which he's prayed for, that he lost in the the midst of his sin, the joy and the drive. Is it not? It's the fruit of real change. Just look at the contrast between his words and these verses against verses 1 through 12. Look at the difference in the petitions before he came to God in his misery, saying, cast me not away from your presence. As if he approaches with a shield in hand, with his tail tucked between his legs. But now he approaches God as the God of his salvation. The God of his salvation. It's what the New Testament teaches us that we can now approach the throne of grace boldly, making our petitions known to God because of what Christ has done and that He ever lives to make intercession for us before the Father, now and forevermore. So we've seen so far that one result of spiritual renewal in the life of a restored Christian is a will to proclaim. But secondly, we have here in our text, a heart of humility, which we see in verses 16 through 17. A heart of humility. He says, beginning in verse 16, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. I don't think David here is making an attack on the Old Testament sacrificial system. I don't think he's speaking to the abrogation or ending of the Old Testament sacrificial system. It's not quite time for that yet in Scripture, but he's dissecting it. He's dissecting before us the meaning of those animal sacrifices, right? He's telling us what genuine obedience to God is, what it is that actually pleases God. God. And I don't think that we should doubt that David is recalling again his predecessor as Israel's king, King Saul. If you remember, King Saul was apt to give sacrifices to God. He gave many sacrifices to God, but they were a means for his own gain. He gave sacrifices. He offered worship to God as a means for his own gain. So what separates the sacrifice of David and the sacrifice of Saul? What separated Cain's sacrifice from Abel's sacrifice? What made one's pleasing over and against the other? Look no further than our text for this answer. 
It's right here. It's heart posture. A broken and contrite heart. God will not despise. David probably has thousands of bulls as Israel's king ready to meet the knife upon the altar of the Lord. He says he'd give everything he had if he could, but that's not what God desires. It's not what God desires. God desires heart. God desires your heart. For David to know his need for restoration, he had to be brought down to a state of broken heart, a state of brokenness, to know that he was in the midst of harboring unconfessed sin in his heart. This past week, I took a course in biblical counseling, and my professor used this illustration. It was a marriage and family counseling course, and he told the story of how when he was about to be engaged to his wife, he went into the jeweler, and instead of him taking out the diamonds and showing them over the glass where the diamond would look just like the glass, he took him into a back room, and it's dark, and there's a spotlight in there, and he lays them all out in front of him to show him how great these Diamonds are. It's against that that you could tell what they really were. And in that same way, David, from the depths of his sin, from rock bottom, the rock bottom of his fall, he sensed his need for renewal. Now we know at this point that David is a believer, but is this not also what the Spirit does in our hearts in conversion? Just look at the flow of the psalm here. The order of the psalm. The first thing that we become aware of is our depravity. That we're depraved. We heard a bit about that in Sunday school this morning. That we are stand guilty before God. And then we become conscious of our sins. They stand out to us. We realize that even the greatest sacrifices that we offer, the greatest deeds, the greatest prayers aren't worthy to scratch the surface of what's pleasing to God in that state. To scratch the surface of satisfaction before God because of the sinful motives that are mixed within. But a broken and contrite heart, a heart that comes before the Lord in meekness, knows it has nothing to offer, but can only appeal to something outside of itself particularly the mercy which has come to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. God's mercy to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. When David sings of the righteousness of God, back in verse 14, I think that's exactly what he's referring to. A righteousness outside himself. An alien righteousness, as it's been called. The righteousness of of God in Jesus Christ. Because it's only through conversion, being united to Christ by faith, that then we can make acceptable sacrifice to God. Then, once we've experienced spiritual renewal, we can do what's pleasing to God. And it's only by the gradual restoration of a man and sanctification that even our motives are restored. That's why we pray oftentimes in our worship services that the Lord would receive 
our imperfect worship through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only made a sweet-smelling aroma before the Father by the ministry and mediation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the one who has been renewed is of a humble heart because they know they've received everything from elsewhere. It's not what I've done, not what my hands have done. That the renewal only came by the sovereign grace of God. Jonathan Edwards would only echo David in our passage this morning when he said that we've contributed nothing to our salvation except the sins that made it necessary. We contribute nothing to our restoration except the sins that makes it's necessary. It's all of grace and all of God. So we've seen so far two implications of renewal in the life of a believer, of spiritual renewal in David's life, a will to proclaim and a heart of humility. But finally, David gives us in verses 18 through 19 one last result or implication, which is an outward-focused concern, an outward Focused concern. Notice he says in 18 and 19, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Some have read this uh, as being added in a later edition at some point in Israel's history. That it's not... um, Originally from the penmanship of David, but possibly the Israelites looking back when they've come back from the Babylonian exile and they're looking back to David and the grace that he's received and asking that they would receive it as well. But I don't think that that's the case. I think if we understand these verses correctly, it fits perfectly well into David's prayer. We can see that David has written this. We already know that David has an outward concern for others because he's resolved to go and teach others what God has done for him. We know that. So I think that David here is praying an intercessory prayer for the rest of Israel, for the people of God, that the renewal he's experienced in his own life would be experienced by the rest of the people of God. That his fall, that his actions and his sins of adultery and murder would not inhibit the people of God as a public figure, as the one God has appointed. That though God has built up his church, he invokes God to do so even more. He knows that as the biblical saying goes, except the Lord do build the house, the builders build in vain. Except the Lord build the spiritual walls of Jerusalem, they're sure to crumble. That without the masonry work of God in the hearts of men, our hearts are as but stones. And we need what Ezekiel has talked about, which is a new heart also I will give you. And a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh And I will give you a heart of flesh. We need what the Holy Spirit offers. 
And as that text says, then, then and only then, once a person has experienced renewal by the Spirit, then he says, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to keep my judgments. That even our obedience is by the work of God's Holy Spirit in us. That is, Paul says, our works have been prepared for us from before the foundation. That God prepared those works beforehand for us. That the whole of the Christian walk is by grace and of grace. And because of that truth, we see the final response of David in Psalm 51, which is worship. Worship. The end of the restoration is worship. Then and only then, with renewed hearts, can a person offer sacrifices, worship, pleasing to God. What is the end of the Christian life? It's the glory and worship of the triune God. That's the purpose for which we have been Renewed is the worship of God himself. To come before the matchless king is those who have been brought up from the spiritual depths of the sea. To worship him in Zion, as David says. To ascend the holy mountain of the Lord, Mount Zion, and worship him at his peak. To dwell with God forever, crying, holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And worthy is the Lamb who was slain to take away the sins of the world. That's the final picture that this psalm offers us this morning. Is restored to worship. Restored to worship. It's that if we've experienced the forgiveness of our sin and the mercy of God, we've been restored with the ultimate purpose of worshiping, of returning thankfulness, returning thankfulness to God as the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith, the God of our salvation. And as David would teach us as redeemed sinners, all of our life should be a doxology. All of our life should be offered as an expression of gratitude for the undeserved spiritual renewal we've received from God Himself. Friends, come to Him now. Come to Him and experience true restoration and renewal. Come and worship the One in whom we've obtained the pardon for sin and give Him the glory that is due His name. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the stories in Scripture, the true history that we see of men and women who have experienced the sovereign grace of God and the renewing of hearts. We pray that You would do so to our hearts this morning, that You would cleanse us from our sin, create in us clean hearts, and we will sing forever of Your righteousness before Your throne. We pray In the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, amen.